Book One, Chapter Ten of Round the Block by John Bell Booten. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Infirmities of Genius. Allow me to point out some of my friends, Mr. Overtop. Among them are faces which you may have seen. If not, you will at least recognize several of the names. But I must protest that I am monopolizing too much of your time, madam, interposed Overtop, conscious that his neglected friends were looking on awkwardly and waiting for him. And I protest against your protesting, said Mrs. Slapman, with a merry laugh. So saying, she motioned him to one of the front windows, and under the shade of heavy blue and gold curtains, commenced to point out notable guests. Mr. Overtop observed, first with regret and then with pride, that their withdrawal into a corner elicited looks of surprise and curiosity, not unmingled with envy, from the little group that hovered about the refreshment table, and drank Mrs. Slapman's fine wines, and laughed and joked together. He was glad to see that his two friends sauntered through the parlors, examining the pictures and articles of taste which caught the eye on every side, and that Mr. Quigg was engrossed in the examination of some books on a center table, opening them and smoothing their fair pages with his hand as if they were ledgers. You see that stout man with the double chin, the one drinking champagne to the left of the table? That is Mr. Scrimser a gentleman who has made several aeronautic excursions, and talked about a balloon voyage to Europe last year. You may remember his portrait and plans of his airship in the illustrated papers. I do, said Overtop, and also that he didn't go. Precisely. Some trouble about the currents, I believe. You note that small man with a sharp face, the one sipping a glass to the right of the table. That is Mr. Boskirk, inventor of the submarine summer-house, a species of diving-bell, which is to be owned and managed by a joint-stock company. I have promised to take a few shares in the concern. Excuse the digression, madam, said Overtop, but ought not these two gentlemen to change places in life? Is not the heavy one peculiarly adapted to the diving-bell, and the light one to the balloon? Mrs. Slapman smiled and looked faintly surprised, as if the remark were unworthy of her guest. Probably you know that gentleman under the picture of a landscape, talking very earnestly to another gentleman, who seems to want to be getting away. The man with the long curly red hair? I know his face well, and though I have no further knowledge of him, am morally certain that he is a social reformer. Why? asked Mrs. Slapman because I never saw a man with long curly red hair who was not a social reformer. Men with red hair, the true carrot tint I mean, have a natural propensity for reform. Some of them repress it, but others give rein to their inclinations, go into the reform business, and hang out their curls as a sign to all mankind, and all mankind interpret it as readily as they do the striped pole in front of a barber's shop. A striking thought, truly, and full of truth, said Mrs. Slapman. I will mention it to Mr. Gormit. On reflection, however, I won't. I might wound his feelings, for he is an exquisitely sensitive creature. As you have ingeniously discovered, he is a social reformer. At present he is only known to the public as the editor of the Humanitarian Harbinger, 
but his select circle of friends are well aware that he is devoting his ripened genius to the production of a work called the Progressional Principia, which will be in four volumes, and exhaust the whole subject of social science. This immense undertaking is a favorite subject of his ordinary conversation. He is probably at this very moment giving a general outline of the book to that gentleman on his right. That slender young man with the Van Dyke beard, cutting into a cake, you may not need to be told, is Patching, the painter of those delicious interiors, which have been seen every year by those who had eyes to find them, in obscure corners at the rooms of the National Academy of Design. In short, Patching is the subject of a conspiracy in which the Hanging Committee is implicated. But though professional envy may place his works in the worst possible light, and for some time cast a shadow over his prospects, an independent public taste will ultimately appreciate his genius. Mark the melancholy that overspreads his features as he tastes that glass of sherry. Next to truth, melancholy is the chief characteristic of his style. In a miniature portrait, which he painted of me last year, and which is regarded as a capital likeness, he introduced a shade of sadness which is at least not habitual with me. Mr. Overtop hastened to say that of that fact he needed no assurance. Without giving a minute account of all my guests, I may say generally that they include novelists, dramatists, actors, and musicians. Some you may know by sight, the acquaintance of all you may make at a future time. At this strong hint Mr. Overtop replied that he should be only too happy. He had by this time come to the conclusion that there never was a more candid and delightful widow than Mrs. Slapman, and furthermore that she was that rarity, a sensible woman, of which he had been so long in search. Mr. Overtop mentally hugged himself. By the way, sir, you will pardon the impertinence of the question, but to what profession do you belong? I am a lawyer, madam, said he, fearful that the announcement would not be well received. Fayette Overtop, firm of Overtop and Maltboy. Mrs. Slapman mused a moment and said, It is a little singular that, among my large collection, I mean circle, of friends, there shouldn't be a single lawyer. As I am a single lawyer, Mrs. Slapman, it is within my power to supply that deficiency among those who are honored with your friendship. Mr. Overtop thought with some reason as he finished this remark that he had never said a better thing in his life. Mrs. Slapman's severe taste rejected Overtop's pun, but not himself, and she was about to say that she should put him on the list for her next conversazione, when another awkward interruption occurred in this wise. Signor Mancusi was a gentleman with an Italian name and a perfect knowledge of English, who sang bass parts in a church uptown, and enjoyed the reputation of having personated the chief druid in Norma at an early period of the New York opera. Monsieur Bartin played one of numerous violins at the Academy of Music, and was believed to be kept down only by a powerful combination. Three months before this New Year's Day, both of these gentlemen had volunteered their services in company with many other musical people to give a grand concert in aid of a benevolent enterprise. To Monsieur Bartin, as a man supposed to know something of sharp management, 
from his connection with the opera, was entrusted the supreme control of the whole affair. It is due to M. Bartin to say that he tried to perform his laborious duties faithfully, and with perfect justice to his associates. When, therefore, in ordering the printing of the gigantic posters which heralded the concert, he directed his own name to be placed at the head of the eminent artists who had offered their services for the occasion, and in type half as large again as any of the rest, he only expressed a conscientious opinion of his superiority over all of them. In this opinion his associates happened to disagree with him, each one claiming that himself and nobody else was entitled to typographical precedence. Most keenly was the alleged injustice felt by Signor Mancusi, who stood at the foot of the sloping list in letters less than an inch long, and he had made a solemn vow to revenge himself on M. Bartin the first time that they met after the concert. Their simultaneous appearance at Mrs. Slapman's was that time. M. Bartin had been privately informed of the Signor's intentions, and regretted that that gentleman's ridiculous vanity should get the better of his judgment. Seeing him at Mrs. Slapman's, M. Bartin avoided the Signor's presence. Fearing they might come into a collision disgraceful to the time and the place, the Signor, for the same considerate reasons, kept shy of M. Bartin. After dodging each other for a long time, they were at last brought by accident face to face. M. Bartin was calm. Signor Mancusi tried to be tranquil, but those small, lean black letters at the foot of the list rose vividly to his mind, and before he could check himself he had whispered or hissed between his set teeth the word scoundrel. M. Bartin was taken unawares, but had sufficient presence of mind to reply, You're another, in a whisper, low but freighted with meaning, whereupon the signor responded also under his breath, You're no gentleman. To this assertion M. Bartin answered with masterly irony, And you are a gentleman now, ain't you? Up to this point the controversy had been pleasantly conducted in whispers, and was unnoticed by the bystanders, but M. Bartin's last insinuation had the strange effect of maddening the Signor still more. He lost his self-control and said in an audible voice, You're only a scraper of catgut anyhow. M. Bartin, also oblivious of the proprieties, retorted louder still, and what are you but an infernal screech-owl? Cries of, Hallo! What's the row? Hush! And, For shame! rose from all parts of the room, and the two musical gentlemen, conscious that they had grossly misconducted themselves, stepped back a yard from each other, and were immediately surrounded by several friends, and kindly told that they were a pair of fools. Mrs. Slapman and Overtop rushed to the spot, the latter measured the two combatants with his eye, to see if he could safely undertake to pitch both or either of them out of the room, if requested to do so by the widow, and concluded that he could not. Mrs. Slapman was much embarrassed by this painful outbreak. It was only three weeks ago that M. Bartin had dedicated a new quadrille to her, 
and but a fortnight since Signor Mancusi had sung four operatic airs gratuitously at one of her musical and dramatic soirees. But respect for herself and for her guests, especially for Mr. Overtop, of whose talents she had formed an exalted opinion, pointed out her path of duty, and she followed it. She stepped between the two disputants, and cast a look of surprise and regret at each. I was hasty, said Signor Mancusi, and I was too impulsive, said Monsieur Bartin. Then, gentlemen, if you would merit my continued friendship, please make up your little difference by shaking hands. They recoiled from the proposition a moment, but being pushed together by their respective friends from behind, took each other's right hand shook it once feebly and said distinctly with their eyes we shall meet again very well done said mrs slapman with the air of an empress tempered by a charming smile and let us hope that is the end of it now mr overtop allow me to offer you some refreshment mrs slapman was in the act of handing a glass of champagne to the favored overtop when an unearthly shriek was heard which startled the steadiest nerves this shriek was repeated three times in quick succession and seemed to come from the sidewalk in front of the house there was a general rush to the window but wilkeson overtop maltboy and quigg ran for the street at once surmising the source of the cry there stood captain tonkins in the sleigh leaning against the dashboard holding in one hand an empty jug and in the other his whip Around the sleigh were a dozen men and boys who had been convoked by the cry of fell citizens. More men and more boys were seen coming in the distance. As the four lessees of the sleigh approached him, the captain again yelled, fell citizens. For heaven's sake, stop, captain, cried Quigg. A smile of contempt played upon the captain's large lips, as shaking his whip defiantly at the agitated group, he shouted, "'I, I know ye. Don't think I don't know ye. You're Mulcahy men, ev mother's son of ye, and you're come to this ear meetin' to put down freedom of speech. But you're carn do it. Pete it. You're carn do it. I defy ye. I defy ye.' The captain was a powerful man and Quigg, as well as his companions, singly and collectively, shrank from trying physical persuasion on him. Besides, a crowd of people had gathered, who were greatly enjoying the scene, and desiring its continuance for an indefinite period. Fell citizens, continued the captain. Now these vile tools a Mulcahy he silenced. Warn tell ya. I'm candid school spectre in this ward first place i'm only reg'lar candid second place i feel great interest moral wants of all your children may say they are my own children god bless em third place my dear fell citizens if you'll just step inter phil rooney's for ye vote you'll find some whiskey there and that that's best argument after all Having reached the logical end of the first and last speech ever made in public by Captain Tonkins, the captain tumbled out of his sleigh and sprawled upon the snow, whereat the bystanders shouted for joy, 
and the widow Slapman, and two large windows full of guests shook with laughter. "'Splatform fallen?' asked the captain. "'Yes,' replied one of the citizens, humoring the idea. "'The platform gave way, and you tumbled to the ground.' "'I, I know who did,' resumed the captain. "'Them Mulcahy-men, they saw on posts.' Here the captain descried two widow Slapmans smiling on him from a window, and gallantly kissed his hand at them. His heavy body was tumbled into the rear of the sleigh, a buffalo robe thrown over it, and Captain Tonkins was then unconsciously borne toward the bosom of his family in Minetta Lane, a friend officiating as driver, amid the cheers of his late audience. The three bachelors were satiated with their day's experiences. They raised their hats to Mrs. Slapman, still laughing at the window, and walked smartly home. Mr. Quigg, deriving much comfort from the thought that Captain Tonkins had not been paid for his sleigh, and would not be, hastened to a neighboring stable, hired the only remaining team, and continued his round of calls, giving one minute to each. End of Book 1 Chapter 10